You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. On the episode today, I have Dr. Paul Ethler joining us again. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks, thanks for coming, Paul. So today we've got an interesting one. We're going to talk about immunisation refusal. Um, but first I would sort of perhaps talk about the uh, debate over childhood immunisation. We've, um, we've seen a lot of debate in the public forums. Uh, we've seen One Nation on, on a policy of, of questioning public immunisation. Um, why is immunisation so politically charged? Well, I think a number of factors. Well, first of all, I think that the debate isn't that uh, widespread. The vast majority of, uh, of parents support immunizations and people support immunizations, but you have a, a small and vocal uh, group that do not. And I think the reason that is, it, you know, immunizations are unique in all of medicine. We are, here we are given to the entire population of well people a therapeutic. We don't do that for anything. Like if you come in with a pneumonia, we give you an antibiotic. Well, you have a problem, you need to be fixed. Here you're well, you're a well baby or a well adult. And we say, you know, to every single one, almost with a few exceptions, take this medicine. So I think it is different than other aspects of medicine as, as a prevention. And, and what that inspires in some people is a feeling that they're being forced to do something they don't want to do because they're well and why are we asking them to do something that may change their, uh, change their well status. And again, I think that's a majority of people, but I think that's where they're, where they're coming from a bit. So immunization's a show of trust and there's perhaps a small group of people that don't have a high sense of trust. Oh, absolutely. I think when you look at folks that uh, uh, do not support immunizations, you often find, and I think this has been borne out in studies, they may hold other uh, lack of trust, lack of government trust positions as well. Like, be more likely to think that uh, you know the U.S. didn't go to the moon, for yeah. instance, is one of the ones that's been documented. <laughs> and and you know, be more likely to think doctors are being paid by pharmaceutical companies to to promote these uh, medicines, and and that or that uh, governments in in cahoots with pharmaceutical companies at the expense of the population. Well, look, let's go out there and just say, I'm not being paid by a pharmaceutical company. Are you, Paul? No, I'm not. And I actually refuse the, the free dinners and everything else that they might offer just because, I, you know, I think the, the public needs to be able to trust that what I'm saying is, is as a doctor and a parent, not as uh, someone that gets benefits from a pharmaceutical company. Yeah, that's fantastic. And it's very reassuring. Um, look, we've done a lot of study on uh, why people decline immunization for their kids. Um, what does the evidence tell us about why people decline immunization? Okay, so there's really two questions there in, in my opinion. One is why do parents have kids who aren't fully vaccinated? So it doesn't mean they necessarily declined. And what you see in studies all over the world in different populations, at least in industrialized society, the number one reason that a child isn't vaccinated uh, is more children in the home. And what that tells you is parents get busy. Life intervenes. They, they, their older kids are fully vaccinated, but as the younger ones come along, that things, things slip by the wayside. And it's not because they've said, oh, I didn't like what the vaccines did with the other children. It just uh, didn't happen because they were too busy. So I think we have to bear that in mind. If we make vaccines, if we bring it to the attention of parents, and I'll mention a way we can do that in a minute, if we bring it to the attention of parents, remind them how valuable it is, the vast majority of parents will say, yes, I want my kid protected. So, so what you're saying is 
the majority or a large amount of, of non-immunisers, it's not that they object to it, they're just too damn busy to actually get the... Uh, the oh, absolutely. I would say in any society or industrialised society, again, you have about 2%, between 1% and 2% of people that we would consider vaccine refusers. Yeah. And they, they're making an active position of saying, I don't want my child vaccinated or I don't want to be vaccinated. And their reasons are, are usually quite a bit different. We've talked about them. It's usually a lack of trust in medicine. Uh, uh, sometimes it's a misunderstanding of some of the evidence that's been provided to them. But that's a different issue to try and address. The other, the other ones that just haven't, the parents that haven't gotten around to it because they're too busy, we have to make them uh, inexpensive, available, and remind them how important they are, and we will get the job done with them. Yeah, that's great. Um, let's talk about immunisation by location, Paul. There's um, been a lot of work in, in Perth, I know, about immunisation um, versus location. What are the areas that we see in cities that have low immunisation rates? Okay, so I get in trouble whenever I talk about this because they change from quarter to quarter and uh, a jurisdiction that's been identified uh, gets upset. So I'll, I'll say it this way. I think the, the things that would surprise people are that some of the areas of the country do the best. Hmm. The Kimberley does fantastic. Yep. And you know the constraints they face with that giant geographic area, diverse population. And, and I think people would naturally think, well, maybe healthcare services aren't as, uh, as uh, robust in, in those challenging environments. But they clearly are because they get their kids vaccinated. Um, in contrast, we have areas in metro that, that don't do as well. And some of those, again, I think are due to uh, just the access ability to vaccinations. Uh, for certain parts of our more urban, uh, less uh, socioeconomically advantaged uh, areas that, that occur. And then we have, sort of have a third uh, category of uh, under-vaccinated areas, and that would be where you have collections of maybe the lifestyle people that are, are less prone to trust government, as we just said, uh, and the alternative lifestyle just in the sense that they are uh, maybe closer to living off the grid. Maybe not that far, but... So yeah, look, that's really interesting. So it, you're breaking it down to different groups. Uh, it's really uh, so fascinating. You know, the assumption that this is a, an issue of remote delivery is not an issue at all. The remote areas are outperforming a lot of the metro areas. Uh, and in the metro areas, it can relate to access, but it can also relate to attitude. Absolutely. And, and you tend to have like-minded people cluster together in communities. And that's, that's the danger. I mean, our immunization rates are relatively high, but you can have pockets where it's quite a bit lower. And that, that leaves an opportunity for a pathogen to get in and spread in that uh, under-vaccinated uh, community. So that it probably means you need unique strategies for unique areas then, I assume. Yes, and I think you you need to try and address the, each of the problems differently. Like if it's if it's access, it's about just expanding hours and making it free and and uh, reminding people. Um, and if it's if it's uh, distrusting government, that's a harder one to fix. Some of those people you can actually uh, really uh, those parents you can convince with evidence. But then there's some that really there's not much you're going to be able to do to change their mind. And I think that. Probably it's not, uh, you, you could expend a lot of effort there for very little gain, and maybe that effort is better spent vaccinating the, the, the children of parents who want their kids vaccinated, which wow. is the vast majority, 98% or so. Yeah, look, that's, so that you've preempted my next question, which is what, should, you know, if we're talking about, you know, the, the people who are just natural refusers through lack of trust, let's say, what should, what should our approach be for those, when they, those patients when they come in and, and talk? Well, 
I am, this is just my personal opinion, I am not a fan of the draconian approach to parents who've decided not to vaccinate their children. In my view, I fully trust that those parents are trying to do the right thing for their kids. And they're making the decision as best as they can to try and do that. And I don't think uh, uh, criticism or sometimes even the American Academy of Pediatrics, they want to exclude kids from care if their parents won't vaccinate. I think you're breaking that relationship and that ultimately is more detrimental to the child's well-being potentially than working with those parents. And sometimes you'll find parents that are no initially but come around. Sometimes you'll find parents that will accept some vaccines and not others. Why well, say give what they will accept because when they see that goes well and, and that what you told them is probably true, they may accept others. So I think it's important to keep that uh, trust going between the clinician and the parents, even if you obviously can't support their position based on the science. So that would be my approach. Other, other clinicians feel differently. They feel like, oh, look, I can't treat this patient if they won't vaccinate, but th that's not where I'm coming from. Yeah, look, so my approach, I mean, I, I, I don't tend to invest vast wealths of time because it's like you say, it just is a loss of time, a, a, lot, of the, uh, a lot of the experience. I do mention, though, that I'm a second-generation GP. My dad was a GP, and he didn't immunise people for, say, measles and see, would see cases of measles once a week. Um, I've seen one case of measles across a career. So, you know, it's just a very obvious impact of... Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the issue with immunizations is they are so successful, they are so effective that they basically remove disease. So people don't see disease and all they see is uh, real or imagined side effects and that starts to weigh more in their mind. But if you go back even to when I started in medicine, you know, hip, invasive hip disease was common. Mm. And it's just dropped off the face of the planet, or at least where we vaccinate. And it, that's just a really tangible example of the good that immunizations can do. And younger parents, they're not going to have that experience. So we're going to have to be more creative about uh, how we convey the message to them of the importance. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk now more broadly. I mean, WA's had great success in improving immunization rates. What are the broad strategies that have worked? Well, I think recall is really important. That's identifying children that aren't up to date and then uh, reminding their parents to bring them back to practice. And so we've gone that, into that in a big way. We now send GPs a list of all their patients that are overdue every, every so often so that they can try and recall them. And I think that's the most effective strategy because that works for these. You know they've, if, they're, if they're overdue for some vaccinations, that already means they're vaccine acceptors, right? So conceptually they are on board. So it's reminding them they need to come in and, and over, overcoming that. So I think that's really important. For our rates overall, um, data quality is important. To be quite honest, the data in ACER in the past has not been optimal, and there's been glitches from GPU practice software sending information across to ACER, and we're do spending time learning what causes those glitches and how they can be fixed. Now, that doesn't get more kids vaccinated, you know, so, so in some sense it's artificial, but it does tell us where our rates are and where we need to direct our resources going forward, so it is important information. And then I think the other thing we've been working hard in is, is really trying to uh, get school entry record checks. Now, this might surprise people because uh, the U.S. in some ways has a tattered health 
care system compared to Australia. But when you look at immunization rates in five-year-olds, they're equal or above Australia. And how do they do that? It's with school entry record checks. And that doesn't mean keeping kids out of school who aren't vaccinated, but that's that almost every kid starts school. And that's the point when you sit down with the parents and you say, your kid's not up to date, you need to do something about it. And they have a relationship with that school and they get the job done. Yeah, so bringing it to that sort of more personal level rather than seeing it as a government intervention, basically. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They have a relationship with the school, the school nurse, the school principal, yep. and they say, did you know your child's not up to date? We really want them to be vaccinated for their own protection, the protection of the other kids in our school. Yep. The vast majority of parents who are vaccine acceptors, uh, conceptually, will, will then get the job done. Yep. And that, I think in WA particularly, but across Australia, we could do a more robust job of institutionalizing that is starting school means immunization record check. Yep. So for practices, we're saying really look at your recalls, take notice when when um, you're given information about people who haven't taken up vaccines. Think about um, late immunizers as people that you just need to convert over. Mostly they're just overwhelmed with their own busy lives and they, they're not going to be the, the refusers. They are going to be accepters basically and, and push them. Absolutely. And, you know, identify your kids that are overdue. ACER uh, AIR now, the Australian Immunization Register, is a fantastic tool. It'll show you your kids or others that are overdue. Using that list regularly will really help get your rates down. And Paul, one of the things I remember from when we worked together was just calling a patient is extraordinarily powerful. So a doctor calling a patient to say, come in for your immunization is a very, very powerful intervention and is likely to succeed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think now we're also looking at new technologies. Calling is very powerful. A lot of people, younger people, younger parents communicate with uh, by uh, smartphones and SMSs these days. And so we've been trialing using SMSs to remind parents and others to come in for vaccination. And we've been able to show that that works for influenza vaccinations. That's the first one we tried because it's the easiest to program because it's just once a, once a year. Um, but we think if it works for flu vaccinations in both young kids, which it does, and older adults, it'll also work for the scheduled vaccinations for uh, children. Great. Um, so let's think about Australia You know, as an international country. How does Australia compare to other countries in terms of immunization rates? Well, I mentioned a, a, a little bit with the United States, sort of, a, they're almost neck and neck there, um, with the U.S. generally being a, a little better at some points in time. Australia does very well. I mean, there's a comprehensive medical care system here, and there is this amazing register, and there is a nationally funded uh, program for vaccines. So Australia does very well, but the, the places that really kill it are Scandinavia. Yeah. You know, it, in many health measures, yeah. uh, those countries, uh, they just are, they're hard to compete with. They have really good social infrastructure, and uh, and that should be our goal, to try and get where Scandinavia is in, in their vaccination rates. So so what you're saying, you know, with, with the health outcomes, it, it is that social infrastructure rather than the health infrastructure, you, you're saying? Oh, absolutely. And I think part of the reason parents vaccinate is because it's a social norm. Yeah. And we have to create and make sure that... Uh, that norm exists in our society to keep parents on side. And it's not helpful when you have uh, sometimes politicians, uh, both uh, in this country and uh, abroad, uh, start linking uh, vaccines to side effects that which have been disproven in the medical literature. That's just incredibly harmful. And the, and the damage has been shown in the UK and the United States, and hopefully that won't happen here. But we need to make sure that uh, parents have the culture that it's appropriate and right to vaccinate and do the best for their children. Yeah, absolutely.
Uh, let's go through a few of the um, the issues that the refusers often cite. So, and I, we kind of know the answers, but I'm, I'm going to push you on them. Um, too many vaccines all at once will overload the immune system. Okay, so yeah, we get this uh, question a lot. And I was once asked to give a talk to cover some of these things, and that led me to the work that's uh, done by Paul Offit, who's a, a major vaccine uh, proponent, who, who has looked at these questions and, and helped gather the research to address them. And for that one, they've had immunologists look at this issue, and they honestly believe that a human can respond to about 100,000 different antigens at any given time. So the idea that you're getting several antigens or several vaccines at one time, that that's going to overwhelm this immune system does not make biologic sense. In fact, they say that once a baby is born into the environment, those first few days they are responding to a tremendous number of antigens from bacteria and other things that they encounter and, and they're able to handle it. The immune system is a marvel yeah. and, and this is not going to overwhelm it. Uh, what about the one around increased autoimmune disease? Yeah, so that's in some ways in some ways tied into this idea of overwhelming the immune system where people think that somehow you're going to wreck the immune system. Well, they have done a good study where they look, they got a group of vaccinated children and a group of unvaccinated children, and they follow them through time, and they see the incidence of other diseases, not the ones that were included in vaccines, between the two groups, and there is no evidence whatsoever to suggest that vaccinated kids get more uh, infections of other types. Yeah. So there'd be no reason to think it's wearing out the immune system or leading to autoimmune dysfunction in any way. Mm -hmm. So of the ones that have been looked at specifically, and this is for a, a human papillomavirus vaccine, there's been a lot of questions about uh, young women and autoimmune disease. Again, when they do good studies, which often come from Scandinavia, again, where they have good population-based registries, they, they don't see uh, a difference that can be attributable to vaccines. That's great. Um, and look, last one. There's high rates of failure amongst immunizations and you're better off having a wild infection. Well, uh, th that, that is just hard to understand. I think that comes from the viewpoint of people that haven't seen these infections at their worst. Yeah. I mean, measles, uh, I have uh, worked in refugee camps in, in Africa, and measles coming into the camp would just scare the daylights out of us for what it would do to these children. Deaths, uh, loss of eyesight. Uh, it, so people that feel that natural infection is better uh, probably haven't seen natural infection. Um, I can't imagine someone saying that about polio. You know, natural infection would be, or meningitis, natural infection would be better. So it, it, to me, it doesn't, doesn't make sense. And on the issue of vaccine failure, well, some of our vaccines, well, all of our vaccines, none of them are perfect, 100% coverage, uh, all, protection all the time. But what we have seen with even some where you get the infection afterwards, say chickenpox, varicella, is if you've been vaccinated, you may still get the infection, some people do, but it's a milder infection. So you've primed the immune system. So even if you can't prime it to the point where you were protected, completely, uh, you can derive benefit from vaccination. And, the, and I'll close with that comment, which is saying something I think is helpful to understand. People often question why, like, why isn't the pertussis vaccine better? Why doesn't it, you know, do better than 80% protection? That kind of, well, if your body, if after natural infection, can't develop 100% protection, <laughs> we can't trick it into doing that with a vaccine either. Yeah. Whereas measles, you get it once in your life, we can create a vaccine that basically will protect you for life from measles. So some of it has to do with our own innate ability to respond to the pathogen. And vaccines can get close, um, but they're, they're probably never going to surpass it. Okay, Paul. Look, I've got one curveball last question. Okay. Prom promise the last one. <laughs> uh, this is a bit of an odd one. 
Is the CIA responsible for immunisation failure? Um, well, not in the broad sense of they have been doing something behind the scenes <laughs> with uh, plotting with vaccination companies. But, you know, I think it, we, people have criticised them for their uh, efforts with, uh, you know, using agents to get information, basically using vaccinators to get in intelligence information in the Middle East and how that has resulted in a backlash. And they've been rightfully criticized by uh, a letter just saying this is totally inappropriate to place uh, immunizations at risk and vaccinators at risk for your uh, geopolitical purposes. So in some ways, I'm very disappointed that that's uh, the method they use. It's resulted in the deaths, ultimately, of uh, vaccinators in that area of the world and probably a lot of unvaccinated children. So uh, they do bear some culpability for that. It's disappointing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it probably seemed like a good idea at the time, um, but they didn't really think through the consequences would be my, uh, my opinion on that one. Paul, thank you. You've been a great sport. And that's just lots of really useful information about an approach to vaccine refusers. So thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. And that's The Good GP. Mm -hmm.